Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books on Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke with Dr. Avner Baz about his book, When Words Are Called For, A Defense of Ordinary Language Philosophy. In it, Dr. Baz makes a case for the reconsideration of ordinary language philosophy in mainstream philosophical circles. Being familiar with OLP from a literary perspective, my conversation with Dr. Baz was enlightening, to say the least. I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm talking with Avner Baz uh, about his book, When Words Are Called For, A Defense of Ordinary Language Philosophy. Dr. Baz, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm happy to speak with you. Okay, Dr. Baz, just to get started, if you could tell us a little bit about your academic career and sort of how you've, how you've come to, uh, to your current position at Tufts. Well, you know, I grew up on a kibbutz, and in those days on the kibbutz, um, uh, the school did not have exams or grades, and you were only supposed to be motivated by, you know, curiosity or the love of learning. Um, so it took me many years. I mean, for many years I was a cowboy, and you know, though I philosophized a lot with other cowboys and with my father and brother, it took me many years to feel like I was ready to um, go to the university. Um, I worked in construction. I was a cowboy for many years, um, and then when I finally. Um, decided it was time to go to the university, I went to the Hebrew University and I started studying math and physics. Um, After a year, though, I was accepted to the interdisciplinary program for fostering excellence in Tel Aviv, at Tel Aviv University. Um, And this is a program that leads directly to um, an MA degree. Um, And it really is meant to be interdisciplinary, so you are encouraged to take courses in different disciplines so long as they all serve your purposes and your interests. Um, And I ended up um, drifting away from math and physics and and towards philosophy, and and in the end I wrote my master's thesis on um, Kant and Wittgenstein. I mean, in the thesis I, I actually connect Kant's account of beauty in the critique of judgment with those remarks in the philosophical investigations in which Wittgenstein says that um, understanding a sentence is more akin to understanding a piece of music um, or a picture that does not represent reality than we tend to realize. And, and, And this idea that the meaning of an utterance is not separable from uh, the act of utterance, just as the meaning of a piece of music or a gesture is not separable from the piece or gesture, is still very central to my work um, today. Um, I should also mention that my uh, thesis advisor, Ellie Friedlander, urged me at the time to read Stanley Cavell. He felt that, you know, seeing my thesis, he, he felt that I, I really had needed to read Stanley Cavell. And in my arrogance, I think it took me time to um, come to truly appreciate Cavell's work. But nowadays, um, 
I can say, you know, Cavell's work has been um, has had the most influence on my work, and and I find um, that work to best exemplify uh, what Wittgenstein means when he talks about leading words back from their metaphysical to their everyday um, use. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, uh, then I, I went to Chicago and studied um, and, and did my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago with Peter Hilton. Um, I, my thesis actually had uh, three separate parts. One was on aspect perception in Wittgenstein, the, the, the idea of seeing something as something. Um, also in connection with Kant's aesthetics. The, the, the second paper, or the second part of the dissertation was um, an attempt to, to um, articulate um, an understanding of moral discourse on the basis of Kant's characterization of um, judgments of beauty. And, and the third was really an attempt to um, develop a critique of Kant's notion of judgment or Kant's understanding of judgment from a Wittgensteinian perspective. And this is what I was still working on and thinking on when I um, um, then finished um, my PhD studies and went and did um, four years of postdoc at the Uni- University of Chicago. And and and, fi- and, and, and still, when I wa- when I um, got this job at Tufts, um, which I still have. Um, um, when I came to Taft, still working or thinking about Wittgenstein and, and Kant, two things happened. Uh, the first is that I became aware, painfully aware, um, for the first time of the great hostility towards Wittgenstein and to a lesser extent Austin among wide circles, uh, wide circles of mainstream analytic philosophers. Um, I knew that the quick dismissal of Wittgenstein could not be well grounded because I knew how hard it was to actually understand Wittgenstein's work. <laughs> so even if it could be dismissed, it could not easily be dismissed. Um, but this um, encounter with that uh, level of resistance or with this quick dismissal made me uh, um, drop everything else that I was doing at the time and and and, and try to articulate and, and defend my philosophical grounds. Um, to myself, first of all, but as much as possible, it was important for me that it be um, in conversation or in dialogue with mainstream analytic philosophers. I did not want to end up um, like so many Wittgensteinians who uh, only speak um, among themselves. It was important for me that um, I press these issues in such a way that analytic philosophers would not be able to um, dismiss them. Um, the second thing that happened when I came to Tufts was that I, I was working on a paper at the time in which I compared and contrasted Stanley Cavell and Charles Travis as readers of Wittgenstein. And my sense was that Travis's contextualism, as it is called, had an important truth in it and was also onto something fundamental in Wittgenstein. But I also felt that um, its focus on truth and falsity, or in its focus on truth and falsity, it, it failed to um, capture the radicality of Wittgenstein's um, break with the tradition. Uh, in a slogan, uh, Travis's contextualism was still um, wedded, I thought, to a representationalist picture of language, one that Wittgenstein was trying to free us from. Anyway, 
Um, when I showed that paper to some of my colleagues, their immediate response was, nobody knows Travis. I don't think they would say this today, but at the time, I think you know, they could reasonably say something like this. And they said, nobody knows Travis. If you really want to engage with contextualism, you need to engage with people like David Lewis and Gift the Rose and Stuart Cohen, um, which is what I, what I did. And, and this essentially is how this book came to be. So a defense of ordinary language philosophy, as I understood, it, uh, or you know, Wittgenstein's approach to the understanding and treatment of philosophical difficulties, um, out of engagement or, or, or through engagement with um, contemporary analytic philosophy and especially epistemology. Okay, well, maybe as a way of transitioning into our discussion of the book, I found the book fascinating because I came to ordinary language philosophy from a literary perspective, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's very different uh, in the literary world because I mean OLP is still sort of this emerging uh, kind of critical lens, but it's much more accepted, I would say, uh, or less less skeptically viewed than in analytic philosophy. So I really mm-hmm. found that interesting reading about the. Uh, objections to it from an actual philosophical perspective. Um, and that's, you spend a lot of time in the book kind of making the case for OLP, and I can't remember if it's in the the epilogue. Somewhere in the book you say that I mean, OLP is uh, basically dead in philosophy today, and that you're, you know, you're trying to resurrect uh, ordinary language philosophy and make a case for it. So maybe as a way to start our conversation... Yeah, I would say um, dead among, you know, large circles of, or, or within mainstream analytic philosophy. I mean, yeah, yeah. There are people who still care a great deal about it, also within philosophy. Some people care about Wittgenstein a great deal. Um, some people care about Austin a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe some care about Ryle a great deal and others. But um, for the most part, I mean, if you read the mainstream journals and, and, and books, um, most of the books that come out of the main presses, I, I, I think the sense is um, um, that Wittgenstein's and Austin's teaching has not been taken to heart. And often you'll just have, you know, quick footnotes in which um, that work is being dismissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, could you maybe say just a little bit more? Give us, give the listeners who are who mostly are going to be uh, literary uh, people, maybe a little bit more of a background on the kind of tension between analytic philosophy and Wittgenstein's later work. Yeah. Sure. Um. So, so maybe I'll I'll start by saying um this that. Ordinary language philosophy, and it doesn't really matter what we call it, um, w- the approach that I defend I- in the book. Um, um, I-, I don't claim, and I-, I don't really care so much whether um, the approach is aptly attributable to any particular historical figure. Um, I don't, for the most part, um, engage in um, interpretation of you know existing texts. Um, I'm trying to defend an approach as I understand it and to apply it. Um, but let's call that approach ordinary language philosophy. Um, it proceeds from a particular understanding of the nature of at least very many traditional philosophical difficulties. Mm-hmm. Wittgenstein says philosophical difficulties arise when language goes on a holiday, when, when it's doing no work or no real work. Um, as I put it in the book, um, 
ordinary language philosophy takes it that philosophical difficulties arise when we take our words to express thoughts or to otherwise carry commitments or implications of, of precisely the, the sort that generate traditional philosophical difficulties. And, and, and carry those commitments or implications in virtue of something called their meanings, the, the meanings of those words. Um, and irrespective of how we mean or may reasonably be found to mean our words. Um, in the face of such difficulties, what or ordinary language philosophy does is it appeals to the ordinary and normal use of the philosopher's words. Um, but the aim, um, in, in contrast to, um, with what many people have alleged, the aim is not to show that the philosopher is not making sense. Because ultimately, whether or not someone's words make sense is up to people to find. It's not something, I think, that can be proved. Um, but the aim is to press the question of sense. Um, so the question of whether the philosopher is making sense, and if so, what sense? And whether the sense the philosopher could be making is the sense he evidently needs or wants to be making, given his philosophical purposes. And to press this issue against the assumption that the philosopher um, is making sense and, and furthermore must be making sense because his words have meaning and they're put together grammatically correctly, so there is something the words are saying. Um, regardless of um, what use the philosopher is putting them to. Um, so what we have here, I mean, the, the, the conflict, as I understand it, between ordinary language philosophy and, and what I call mainstream analytic philosophy, um, is two very different ways of thinking about the meaning of a word. Um, and by the meaning of a word, I just mean whatever it is that the word carries with it from one speech act to another, from one utterance to another, from one use to another, and which makes the word um, suitable for some uses and not, and not others. On the prevailing conception, the one um, that, that constitutes pretty much a dogma within, um, again, large circles of mainstream analytic philosophy, um, words, at least most words, and most importantly for my purposes, precisely the words that have given philosophers trouble for millennia, know no or knowledge, free or freedom, mean or meaning, etc. And words refer, as Timothy Williamson puts it, words refer to items in the world. And for example, the word know refers to the state or to the relation of knowing. Um, a relation that holds between some particular person, say, and some proposition. And the word freedom refers to the state of being free. Um, and the word time refers to time, and, and the word um, and cause refers to the property or to the relation of causing or causation. Um, so the meaning of a word is taken to be a matter of its power to refer to, or as philosophers like to say, pick out or name or denote some item or set of items. The items themselves are taken to be there anyway, even apart from any particular context in which they might be referred to and by means of um, the word. And the relation of reference between a word 
and an item or set of items is also taken to hold um, even apart from any particular context of significant use. So I think what, we're, what we have here is still pretty much the empiricist picture or understanding of how words come by their meanings. They get attached to um, items in the world or to bits of, of, uh, of um, experiential intake. And let me just remark that I think this way of thinking about meaning is problematic on the traditional philosopher's own account. For on this account, I can only understand and only competently use a sentence like, um, I have been waiting for a long time. That's an example from Merleau-Ponty. And, or, I'm not free this afternoon, in virtue of knowing in part what time is, the item to which the word time refers to, or what freedom is, the item to which the word free refers to. But again, on the traditional philosopher's own account, we don't yet have anything close to an agreed upon understanding or philosophical account of what time is, or what freedom is. And so on that own account, we don't truly understand what we're saying um, or know what we're saying when we use these words. And yet we seem to um, do perfectly well with these words. We, we seem to be making perfect sense. So um, again, on the philosopher's own account, I would say um, there is something um, not quite right about this traditional picture. Um, now, as ordinary language philosophy things about meaning. The meaning of a word is something like, or it is best understood um, as, a, as a matter of its suitability for being, um, um, its suitability, suitability given the history of its employment, and um, for being put to certain uses, um, but not others. Now, this, in contrast with the first conception, I would argue, is not a theory of meaning. It is really just our everyday criterion for knowing the meaning of a word. To know the meaning of a word is to be able to use it competently in a wide enough um, range of um, contexts. Okay? So there is a fundamental difference between these two ways of thinking about meaning or about the meaning of a word. The first involves substantial theoretical commitments. Most importantly, a commitment to the idea that competent speakers ought to be able to um, um, to identify the items picked out by um, philosophically troublesome words um, and to identify them even apart from any particular context of significant use. The second way of thinking about meaning or the meaning of a word involves no theoretical commitments of this kind. So it is, in a way, the second way is, is in a way, theoretically very weak or unambitious, as weak as unam and unambitious as can be, really. Um, but philosophically, it can be very powerful, as powerful as the traditional philosophical difficulties it enables us to put to rest. Now, I must say that there are, of course, um, arguments that have been widely taken to prove that the commitments involved in the first way of thinking um, about meaning are non-optional, that they must be true. So I spent the first two chapters 
um, of the book, arguing in effect that these widely influential arguments presuppose um, rather than establish the prevailing understanding of meaning. Um, and I don't think um, I'm not going to go into all of the details of these arguments um, against uh, arguments um, advanced by Searle and by Geach and by um, Scott Soames. Um, but one claim that I make in, in, in the second chapter, which is important for me to emphasize, is that at least some of those arguments present themselves as um, empirically grounded as proceeding from um, what is required or what we must assume if we are to empirically understand or explain um, um, the use and acquisition of language. And, and yet, to my knowledge, analytic philosophers um, committed to the prevailing conception of meaning have actually not engaged seriously um, with any empirical studies of language use and acquisition. So, in other words, philosophers advance claims about language um, that present themselves as empirically grounded but are actually um, Surely dogmatic. They they rest, as Wittgenstein puts it, on nothing more than a picture of language. So one thing that I have done since finishing the book is I actually um, looked at some recent studies of first language acquisition, and it turns out that those studies um, do not actually support um, the prevailing conception of meaning. Um, what these studies suggest, at any rate, is that what children learn to identify in learning to use, say, the word no, for example, is not instances of knowledge, so some particular item in the world, but rather different types of humanly significant situations in which uh, constructions featuring no and cognates may be used in various ways um, or may, may do significant work um, or may make significant differences. This is what children learn to identify. Um, so at no point in the, le the learning or in, in the process of coming to be a master of a word does the child need to be able to identify some particular item that is there anyway in which the, world, the word um, uh, simply refers to. Um, anyway, coming back to the book, having addressed in the first two chapters, the prevailing arguments for the prevailing conception of meaning, and thereby against ordinary language philosophy's approach to the understanding and treatment of traditional philosophical difficulties, I then turn, I then turn to show, or try to show, that analytic philosophy has suffered from its failure to take ordinary language philosophy sufficiently seriously. So now, if you want, I can go on and describe in a little more detail what I do in the rest of the book. Yeah, that would be great. I, I mean, I think one thing that I found really interesting about uh, the approach you took is that 
uh, it was a much more kind of in-depth look at the the tension between analytic philosophy and Wittgenstein. And like I said, as being someone from a literary perspective, I found Wittgenstein, when I first read Philosophical Investigations, fairly liberating because uh, he basically says that we we only need to philosophize when there's a problem <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that we get ourselves into trouble when we philosophize. Um, and so it's it's from, you know, when, when I was, when I first read that it was so easy to just sort of uh kind of disregard the you know that basically that entire tradition that Wittgenstein was basically saying well you know you've basically been you know wasting your time building castles in the the sky in the air Mm -hmm. um but I thought that I mean uh, this is a philosophical book you teach in a philosophy department and I thought that you know the time you spent really kind of fleshing out those arguments which you know seem valid from one perspective I thought that was uh really fascinating and i especially liked what you had to say between the the uh, similarities between kant and wittgenstein uh-huh. in the epilogue yeah. so maybe if you do want to talk just a little bit more about sort of the meat of the book and then i would like you to talk a little bit about the the similarities between kant and wittgenstein that you okay get to. good good and um, but just in, in, the, in more directly re- responding to your question um i actually think that wittgenstein takes um, philosophical difficulties very seriously. Mm. So it's not, first of all, it's not, it, these are not difficulties that you can, as it were, in advance and know not to enter. Mm-hmm. You find yourself entangled. And one thing that the investigations does, I think, is um, show you how every time you think you've overcome some difficulties, at the next moment you can fall back into it. And I think the book is designed in this way. You think you've resolved an issue, and it comes back again. Mm -hmm. And again, you find yourself lost. Because look, I mean, getting lost with one's words is not something that only happens to philosophers. It happens when, you know, in some sense, we philosophize, if you will. Um, But this just means that, you know, we rely on the meaning of our words to ensure the sense of what we're saying when really we're not doing any work with them. Um, And this can happen. It can happen us at any moment. Um, And I think it's important for Wittgenstein that it is. The other thing I wanted to say in response to what you just said is that just as I don't think it is advisable for analytic philosophers to dismiss Wittgenstein too quickly. I also don't think that it is good for Wittgensteinians not to take the forces that that motivate traditional philosophy seriously enough. Mm. Um, for one thing, the result is going to be that the two parties are not going to actually be talking to each other. And I don't think that's very good. It's also not very good for our students. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that I think you do your best work when you um, are in dialogue with those who don't share your starting point. I have you know, given the same paper to audiences that of analytic philosophers that thought I was obviously mistaken and and then have given the same paper to audiences that felt like you know why why do I even um, trouble myself with engaging with analytic philosophers because they are obviously 
um, wrong or um, you know confused. Um, and I think it's a very important kind of experience to find yourself um, presenting the same ideas to two different audiences and, and finding that one audience find it obvious what you're saying, almost not worth saying, and the other audience finds it obviously wrong. And, and this is an interesting um, fact, I think, about philosophizing and about us as human beings that, you know, we can so fundamentally disagree in what we take for granted, in, in where we start. Philosophy is always um, an examination of where we start and what we take for granted, for me. So shall I say a little more about what I do in the rest of the book? Yeah, that would be great. Um, so let me start with chapter three. I, I begin with the fact that for many years, analytic philosophers have been happy to describe themselves and others as relying on intuitions in theorizing about some philosophically um, troublesome notion or another. Knowledge, say freedom, causation, whatever. And so intuitions about whether or not some particular term or word, no, for example, apply to some particular case, um, actual or hypothetical. This talk about intuitions, philosophers describing themselves as relying on intuitions, has invited two serious lines of objection. Um, the first comes from Stephen Stitch, and he calls it the cognitive diversity ob uh, objection, and this is how I call it in the book. Um, Stitch argues, in effect, you philosophers are relying just on your intuitions. Other people may have other intuitions. So why should you attach any special importance or significance to what may merely be your intuitions? And then Stitch's students um, started the experimental philosophy movement. They actually went out to the street or asked their students, and before they got corrupted, corrupted by philosophy, they asked them the traditional philosophical questions. And it turned out that indeed people... Um, tend to disagree, and people from different backgrounds tend to disagree in their answers to the traditional philosophical um, questions. The second line of objection comes from um, Robert Cummings, and he calls it the calibration objection. And, and the objection is essentially that there is no way for us to calibrate our intuitions, no, no way for us to, um, to tell that they really are and detecting or revealing, let alone revealing reliably, whatever it is that we expect them to reveal. I mean, whether it's uh, knowledge, for example, or even our concept of knowledge. Um, in response to these kinds of skepticisms about philosophical methods, the prevailing philosophical method, Timothy Williamson has recently um, argued that the whole talk of intuitions is misguided. Um, he says that what philosophers rely upon are um, simply judgments. And those judgments, he says, are continuous with non-philosophical judgments. In other words, according to Williamson, the theorist question, is this or is this not a case of knowledge? Or if, if about some particular case, is this uh, is the protagonist of this story, uh, does the protagonist of this story know um, that such and such? That question, according to Williamson, is not essentially different 
from an everyday non-philosophical question, such as, I don't know, does the president know that um, the other country has weapons of mass destruction? Um, in response to Williamson, I argue that though everyday non-philosophical questions may be couched in the same words in which the theorist question is couched, there is a fundamental difference and hence a, a, a discontinuity, an important discontinuity between the two questions or types of question. Um, I argue that competent everyday questions have a point. They are expressive um, of some particular interest in the case. Whereas um, by design, the theorist question has no point in the relevant sense. It is not meant to be expressive of some particular interest in the case. Um, so whereas understanding everyday um, an everyday question is a matter of seeing its point, and whereas answers given to everyday questions are beholden to their point. In the theoretical context, um, all we have are some familiar words in the case. The prevailing conception of language um, would have us assume that that should be enough, that um, the theorist is asking a clear enough question and that as competent speakers, we ought to know the answer to that question. However, if what guides or orients us in everyday discourse um, is our ability to see the point of an utterance, then there is no reason to suppose that the theorist um, question coming, coming as it does without a point um, is clear enough and, and that as competent speakers, we ought to be able to answer it correctly, um, whatever answering it correctly um, might be. Um, the way I press this issue in still in chapter three is I take one of the cases that philosophers have used to generate or check for the get here in, in intuition, the intuition that is supposed to teach us that or, or tell us that knowledge um, is more than just justified true belief. Um, so you're presented with a case, the protagonist um, has believe something, what they believe is true and is justified, and yet we're supposed to have the intuition that the protagonist doesn't know um, the proposition in question. And what I do in my argument is I invite the reader to imagine different contexts in which someone would actually encounter a case such as the one that philosophers have used in trying to generate the Gettier intuition. And I try to show that in none of those contexts of real everyday encounter would the question um, that the person um, asked themselves um, be um, the, the theorist question. So the, the question that would most naturally arise in each of those different kinds of contexts of encounter with the case would never be the, the theorist question. Um, it would always have a point. Um, and it would never be very um, difficult or mysterious to answer it. Not in the way that um, the philosophical question is difficult um, to answer. So I conclude um, that philosophers talk of intuition um, should not be dismissed as betokening 
misguided skepticism about our capacity for judgment, as Williamson suggests. And I argue that the skepticism is justified, but it is not skepticism about our capacity for judgment, because that capacity is really um, either um, non-operative or um, severely handicapped in the theoretical context. Rather, um, the skepticism is about the prevailing method of philosophical inquiry. Um, and the talk of intuition, uh, you know, the, the fact that philosophers have found themselves describing themselves as, as, as relying on intuitions, I think, um, expresses a sense of lacking sufficient orientation in the theorist's context of standing nowhere in particular and going nowhere in particular with their words. Um, then I'll go on a little more briefly. In chapters four and five, I bring the contextualist into the story. The contextualist actually agrees with me that the theorist question, as raised in the theoretical context, lacks a clear sense. He agrees with me that the question, as presented, may be un answered neither correctly nor incorrectly. However, the contextualist puts the dependence of sense on context in terms of truth and falsity. So he still buys into the representationalist picture of language. And as a result, I argue, pays insufficient um, attention to the Wittgensteinian question of use. Um, what I do in these two chapters is I, I look closely at some of the cases or examples that contextualists and anti-contextualists have used or appealed to in their arguments. And I try to show that in some of those types of cases, the question of truth and falsity um, is simply impertinent, does not naturally arise at all. And in other types of contexts, uh, that question or a question of truth and falsity um, could arise naturally, but still it would not be um, the, the contextualist question or the, the question as the contextualist understands it. Um, so the conclusion um, of these two chapters is in a way that even with the contextualist's amendment, the, the theoretical question is um, still out of touch with our everyday employment of our words. It still fails to connect or to be continuous with the sorts of questions that speakers of a language ought to be able to answer on pain of incompetence. Um, and this means that even after the contextualist has come into the picture, the theorist question um, um, is, is um, or, or let's put it this way, that even with the contextualist amendment to the theoretical question, we're still left with um, versions of stitches and common skepticism. It is still not clear what, if anything, our answers to the theorist question reveal, nor why we should care about whatever it is that they might reveal. Um, in the conclusion, I expand this point by arguing that the contextualist response to traditional skepticism is not truly satisfying, and I, and I offer an ordinary language uh, philosophy response to skepticism um, that I think is more satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, Could you elaborate on that? Because I found that sort of reminiscent of uh, some of what Cavell, who you, know, you mentioned obviously that you've found some inspiration in, what he's had to say about skepticism, especially like in the claim of reason. Um, so could you expand on that a little bit? Because I did find that part fascinating. Um, 
Well, I, I should say that um, Cavell, in his response to skepticism, is, is following more closely Wittgenstein, whereas, I mean, my response to skepticism is, is actually more indebted to um, Austin. Mm. Um, and the other thing I would say is that what Cavell means by skepticism ends up not what the traditional philosopher means by skepticism. Mm. Um, what Cavell ends up meaning by skepticism is... Um, as he puts it, um, the very idea that our words could um, relate to the world, um, apart from our um, um, investing them with meaning. Cavell takes it that both the skeptic and the anti-skeptic are guilty of that assumption. right? So in this sense, both are skeptical. Um, and this... Mm, uh, in a way, is what I try to show in, in, in the conclusion. Right? Um, the, the contextualist is still, again, insufficiently attentive to um, how the word no is used, um, and, and therefore is unable to truly live, you know, free us from the, the skeptical um, difficulty as the tradition understands it. Okay. But but let me say that there is in the book, not so much in the conclusion itself, but in the book as a whole, I think, there is what I take to be a deeper, and I would say a more continental response to, um, to skepticism or skepticism about the external world. Because really what I try to show is that um, using our words intelligibly um, r- requires... A certain worldly worldly conditions you know there needs to be a context there needs to be a situation right so that even before we've even set up the the skeptical question we're already in the world right so so in this respect the lesson is more clearly Heideggerian or Merleau-Pontian than, than even Cavellian, I would say. Though I think there are moments in Cavell where he would say things similar to that. Um, and this really is also what I think is Austin's deep response to skepticism. I think it's a mistake that many people who admire Austin make, that they think you can you rid yourself of skepticism just by considering, you know, um, um, how we use the word no. I think the skepticism goes deeper than this, and it cannot be overcome just by way of a theory of what knowledge is or, 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 or what um, the word no means. I think really the, the truly deep Austinian response to skepticism is that the very use of the word no um, requires a worldly context for it to be intelligible. Uh, you give someone assurance. That's that's Austin's main example. Um, um, you you want to let someone know that you already know something that he, he, they don't need to to tell you this, or or you're using the word no in in order to express certainty, or to say that you're sure of something, and all of that already presupposes that you're in a situation in relation to other people and in relation um, to the world. Um, and this, I think, is, is, the, is, is the deeper response to skepticism. Um, and also, I think, something that you can find in Cavell. Okay, well, Dr. Shall... 
Dr. Vaz, uh, I think we've um, taken up a, a bit of your time. Maybe as a way to kind of wrap up our conversation, you mentioned how since writing this book, you've sort of looked at uh, some more uh, modern studies on language acquisition. Uh-huh. Maybe if you could just give us a little bit of information about what you're working on now, maybe your next project, if it's related to, to the topic of this book or not. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to do that, but, but uh, don't you want me to say something about Kant's relation oh, to... Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. I, I mean, yeah, because th- I think it's an interesting connection. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. I totally um, forget. Yeah, yeah, in the epilogue, you talk about some of the similarities between Kant and Wittgenstein I was trying to find in the book. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, if you'd like to, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, so um, the Kant that I connect with ordinary language philosophy, the, the Kant that um, I propose may be seen as a um, a forefather or forerunner of ordinary language philosophy is um, mostly the Kant of the transcendental dialectic of the critic of pure reason. Um, in the transcendental dialectic, Kant famously argues that traditional philosophical um, questions seem to lead to irresolvable difficulties, or what he calls antinomies. And he argues, much like I do in the book, actually, that um, the problem lies with the questions. And the the questions are not in order. And this is why we run into trouble when we try to answer um, those questions. Because according to Kant, all of these questions presuppose that our concepts of experience as he puts it, may be applied to things as they are in themselves. And that is, that they may be applied apart from what he calls um, the conditions of sensibility. Um, Now, uh, most directly he means um, the conditions of um, space and, and time, temporality. But some of the things that he says in the transcendental dialectic suggests that another way of understanding it or cashing this idea out is that philosophers run into trouble when they imagine that their concepts could be applied to things apart from what he calls in the dialectic the progression of experience right or or the unfolding of experience mm-hmm. so apart from a certain practice and a practice that I claim though I don't think Kant would say this or or says this is is is, is a, an intersubjective practice. So something that we already do with others and against the background of a certain history. And so again, I'm, I'm coming back to this deeper response to skepticism about the external world, the, the sort of response you find in Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty. And both Kant and Wittgenstein argue quite similarly that the application of our concepts um, or the use of our concepts or the use of our words, really, requires, and Wittgenstein calls it friction. And and Kant speaks in the introduction to the critique of purism about resistance. Um, And and they argue that this necessary friction is missing in the traditional philosopher's context. Both also argue that, as a result, the philosopher's words are doing no real work. And it's interesting to, to find Kant using the same expression, really. Um, They're not really being employed. Um, And both also argue that what enables the traditional philosopher to sustain the illusion of sense is a picture, both 
so both of them talk about pictures and um that the pictures are misleading and cannot ensure the sense of the philosopher's words is, is not obvious. I mean, both would say it's something that comes out when the philosopher is trying to philosophize, when the philosopher is trying to go on on the basis of those pictures. And, and, and then when the philosopher gets entangled, um, um, it becomes clear that the pictures themselves or, or alone cannot ensure um, the sense of the words or, or cannot and, and guarantee that the philosopher um, would be in control of his or her words. So that's roughly the Kantian um, conception. I also think there are important differences between Kant and, and or the ordinary language philosopher as I understand him, but um, I don't think we should go into that now. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, as a way to sort of uh, uh, wrap up, would you like to say anything about what you're currently working on? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been expanding or trying to expand the work of the book in in three different directions. So, so first of all, I've, I've looked a little more closely at the new trend or the new movement of experimental philosophy. Um, I, I, I make mention of that in the book, um, but um, I don't go into that, and yet experimental philosophy is um, arguably the most significant um, um, event, as it were, in the last decade or so in analytic philosophy. Um, and what I try to show in my most more recent work is that experimental philosophy really partakes of what is most problematic about the tradition and, and in, in a word it, it really is still beholden to the what I've called earlier the prevailing conception of meaning and um, and therefore um, it really um, encourages the same kinds of difficulties or mistakes um, as opposed to showing us the way out of them um, uh, the other thing that I that I've been doing is, as I already said, I, I've looked a little um, into some recent studies of language acquisition, the first language acquisition, um, because um, I think it's important. I, I Actually, I, I would say this, that as a Wittgensteinian, it surprises me that I find myself looking at empirical studies. Hmm. Um, you know, Wittgenstein was very um, suspicious of science. Um, but I, I mean, I think you can be a Wittgensteinian and and still be interested in in empirical reality and empirical studies, um, and I think that if you study more closely these um, studies, um, you'll find that the way in which children um, learn words, for example, know, or understand, or mean, um, fits much more closely um, the Wittgensteinian way of thinking about language, or I would argue Merleau-Ponty's um, way of looking at language, um, um, rather than uh, the analytic philosopher's way of looking at, at language. Um, 
so yeah, so, so this actually um, leads me to the third thing that I've been doing, which is to look more uh, closely at continental philosophies and work, and in particular Merleau-Ponty. I mean, one thing that I'm very interested in is um, to think about the relation, the, both the differences and the similarities between Wittgenstein and, and, and Merleau-Ponty, because some of the things they say are strikingly similar, especially when it comes to language, and yet the methods are so different. Um, Merleau-Ponty, for example, has no problem describing himself as, um, as proposing a theory. Wittgenstein says philosophy should not advance thesis or theories. Um, and Merleau-Ponty uh, proceeds by way of um, very close engagement with the science of his time. Wittgenstein doesn't. Um, so um, I'm interested in those differences as well as in the similarities. And, and this is one thing that I've been thinking um, about more recently. Mm, that sounds very interesting. Okay, well, Dr. Baz, uh, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us today. You're welcome. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Baz, and I hope you'll join me next time when my guest will be Nicholas de Villers, and we'll be talking about his book, Opacity in the Closet, Queer Tactics in Foucault, Barts, and Warhol.